Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Naval Historical Society of Australia. This is one of the many talks in the archives of the Society recorded over nearly two decades from 1973 until 1980 and now available for you through the Society's website. Today we're listening to Lieutenant Commander Wock Roberts, D-S-C-R-A-N. He was commanding officer of HMAS Wagga in the 1950s and describes incidents in Wagga's career in peacetime. I have taken on rather a daunting task tonight. I have undertaken to talk about the time I was in command of the Wagga, which was a period of 15 months from September 1953 to December 1954. We were in a state of deep peace at that time, except for Korea was just over and so on, but you know, nobody really thought that much was going to happen for a while. And the time I was in command of the vessel, our northern point that we reached, we were based in Sydney, of course. The northern point we reached was Gladstone, and the southern point we reached was Gabo Island. The eastern point we reached was Lord Howe Island. So how on earth can anybody keep an audience entertained by telling them about 15 months spent within spitting distance of Macquarie Light, if you're a pretty good spitter, that is. However, there were a number of little incidents which could be of interest. Some of them are a bit technical, and I shall try to uh, I shall try to make them as clear as possible. Anyway, to get on with it, now the Wagga, and by the way, she was called the Wagga, but I have noticed that the folks from Wagga talk about Wagga Wagga, uh, which I think it was Wagga Wagga when I was a kid, I know that. And it's come back to Wagga Wagga, but I think it went down for a while they were happy to be Wagga but they've sort of come back to being Wagga Wagga however I'm talking about the Wagga singular now although there is the tale that uh, the mayor of Wagga Wagga <laughs> launched the vessel or at least his wife launched the vessel and uh, he was taken around the ship on the slip before she actually went into the water and as they walked around the stern, there on the port quarter was Wagga. And the mayor got pretty cranky about this. He said, what's this Wagga? He said, it's two names, not two words, not one, it's Wagga Wagga. And the chap who was showing him around was pretty quick off the mark. He said, will you come with me, sir? Around the other side, he said, there's the other Wagga there. <laughs> and, and all was well. We were forgiven. But I won't go on with that because it gets too complicated altogether. Now, the vessel, she was built at Mort's Dock. Uh, she was uh, commissioned in December 1942, which was uh, some 11 years before I got her. I have no list of her previous commanding officers. Those ships, as we all know, were 790 tons standard displacement, 186 feet long, 31 foot beam, which made them a bit like a saucer. They didn't steer all that accurately, with a 10 foot draft. And an interesting point, in turning propellers, which caused all sorts of, all sorts of, not problems, uh, um, heartburning. Uh, now, when it comes to in-turning and out-turning propellers, I said a moment ago that I might get a bit technical. I will try not to be technical about this one, but 
virtually every ship in the world with twin or more screws has got outturning propellers for fairly good reasons which I won't go into. And one's first reaction is when one goes to a ship with interning propellers is how is she going to react because there's various things happen when you've got interning propellers that are different from outturning propellers and you might not get the same sort of uh, result when you're manoeuvring and trying to turn the ship at rest and that sort of thing. Well for about the first three months I was in the ship I fiddled about uh, following every person's advice and everybody's uh, ideas and eventually I got jack of the whole thing and for the rest of the time I treated her as if she had outturners and she worked perfectly well um, using her as an outturner. Um, for the benefit of the, the people who've gone into this thing a bit, I'll just go one step further. This paddle wheel effect that they talk about, I feel we all know in a single screw vessel it does have an effect, but it's just nothing compared with the moments of one propeller going ahead and the other propeller going astern. Um, when I uh, was in the Wagga, she had a Type 974 radar, which is a little close range job. That's the only radar she had. She had one Bofa gun. Um, we had a ship's company of about 60. We had one signalman, one telegraphist, one anti-submarine operator, and generally two officers beside the captain. So she was manned in a fairly frugal sort of a way. The very first job I had in the ship was to take some reserve, was an officer's training class of reserve sailors up to Broken Bay for the weekend. They came on board under the command I didn't, uh, I didn't get the word beforehand what, which reserve officer was in charge of this class and, and I thought, goodness me, you know, I've got to do a good show and one thing or another, show these reserves of us capture on the ball. Anyway, they came on board and who should be the reserve officer in, in charge but old Dick Dillon, so it didn't really matter. We just had a good time for the weekend. And <laughs> it, but we did, we did do a fairly conscientious sort of a job with these chaps. Um, now, one of the jobs that we had, uh, we did quite a lot, was towing battle practice targets. Now, I don't know when the last battle practice target disappeared. Uh, these were incredible uh, things, uh, I'm sure a lot of you would remember them. Uh, they, they were, in fact, uh, I used to tow the thing alongside until we got clear of things and then we'd drop it astern. And this thing was... 40 feet longer than the Wagga. It had a very little beam, about only about a 10 foot beam I suppose, and I have seen one in dry, dry dock and they had an enormous keel, like oh, more like an exaggerated sailing ship, which they had to have in order to, uh, if you remember a battle practice target was like a sort of ship, with a thing on it like this with sails, when I say sails, a, a canvas screen so it could be seen. Uh, I imagine the last battle practice target would have uh, gone out of commission uh, where, the end of the 50s, something like that. Um, but, but anyway, I used to uh, have to uh, take these out and tow them to the various ships that wanted shoots and so forth. Well, in good weather, or no, in calm weather, or, no, I'll say it, I'll change that again. In St states of low wind it was okay but in any kind of a high wind you can imagine the <coughs> sort of windage you experience because the sails would be set by Garden Island we couldn't set the sails a vast area you can imagine the sort of windage one would experience with this thing alongside of you uh, while you were uh, uh, trying to maneuver to get out of harbour the um, I also remember uh, <coughs> a time when, <coughs> I don't know if any of you remember Mike Aston, uh, he retired uh, as a commander driving patrol boats about 10 years ago. Oh, Mike was my sub-lieutenant. <coughs> and uh, I remember one time we were securing this target astern uh, 
for some reason, not alongside this time. But anyway, a, a dockyard tug had it, and the dockyard tug was alongside, and I was looking over them. Mike was down on the quarter deck. I was looking over the back of the bridge. And uh, it struck me that this target was coming at our stern a little bit too fast. I might say by this time we had a line on. That's right, we had a line on the damn thing. And uh, not only a line, but we had it secured. How the hell did we have it secured? Anyway, we had it secured. And uh, I thought, well, this, this, just to stop it ramming us in the stern, I'll give just a tiny kick ahead, which I did. And, uh, of course, as I gave the kick ahead, the tugger knew exactly what he was doing with the stern. And uh, <laughs> everything came up all standing. The She was secured to one of the... Uh, an eye bolt about that size on the, one of these mine-sweeping eye bolts on the quarterdeck there. The, the, the wire was on there. I, I, I can't remember the exact circumstances why, but I do remember this eye, this eye bolt coming out of the deck like a bullet <coughs> and going past Mike Aston's head about three inches away <coughs> and that was that. No, no worries, it, it, uh, we secured it some, some other way and then away we went. Well, old Mike came up to the bridge later on and I was, uh, well, you know, I felt terrible about this being such a bloody idiot and uh, I said to him, I said, Mike, I, I'm terribly sorry, I nearly killed you then and old Mike said, ah, she'll be right, don't worry. And I thought, well, that's the sort of bloke you want. You nearly kill him and he doesn't even, uh, doesn't even blink an eyelid, you know. Great bloke. Now, uh, I don't know if anyone here is interested in ferries, but uh, I know some people are pretty keen on them. <coughs> we get a little bit further into the time. I've been in the ship a couple of months. And... I'll just do a bit of reading here to change the tone of the thing. On Friday the 9th, I might say, by the way, I kept all my reports of proceedings. That's what's in here. So that's why I'm able to talk about the damn ship. <coughs> On Friday the 9th, Wagga was scheduled to tow the Hulk Karamia, sometime a Sydney ferry, to sea to be sunk by aircraft operating from HMAS Sydney. I've looked up the Karamia since, and apparently she was the biggest of the non-manly ferries that they ever made. She 1,200 bods or something she'd lift. The uh, sometime a Sydney ferry, to tow the Hulk Karamia, sometime a Sydney ferry, to sea to be sunk by the aircraft operate by aircraft operating from HMAS Sydney. The Hulk was not very seaworthy seaworthy and in consequence Wagga proceeded out of harbour independently and checked out the conditions and so on and so forth. And anyway it didn't it wasn't any good that day. The next day we did get the Karamia clear of the uh, heads. At 8.20 the tow cleared the heads and proceeded in the southeasterly course at a steady five and a half knots. At about 9 o'clock the weather began to deteriorate and by 10.30 the wind was blowing 4.6 from the south and a short heavy swell was developing. Some anxiety was felt about Karamia at first but it soon became obvious that she was a far better seaboat than she had appeared to be and it would take much worse weather to inconvenience her. In the meantime Sydney was in sight. 22 aircraft, 22, were observed to fly off from Sydney. Now, those were the days when we did have aeroplanes. At 11.35, the tow was slipped and Wagga withdrew to a position 300 yards out of the way. At 11.50, the first aircraft, a Sea Fury, carried out a dive bombing attack with what are believed to have been 250-pound bombs, one live and one dummy. The flight of the bombs was clearly visible to the naked eye, and the live one, on exploding, flung up a column of water as high as the lowest point of the aircraft to dive. The bombs of the first two aircraft fell close to the target, but were ineffectual. However, the third aircraft scored a direct hit with his live bomb and Karami had disintegrated into a shower of fragments. When the splash subsided, the main body of the Hulk was seen to roll over and sink. 
the remaining aircraft carried out attacks on the wreckage and so on. So that was a, quite an interesting little uh, exercise. Uh, a little later on, we went on down to Jarvis Bay then, and Vengeance was in commission also then, would you believe, two carriers in commission. During the time we were in Jarvis Bay, Vengeance entered harbour, and owing to the fact that the swell conditions at sea were unsuitable for flying, she carried out flying operations in Jarvis Bay, using the full length of the bay and flying off and landing her aircraft into a force five southerly wind. Well, now that's something that maybe nobody knew about, operating aircraft in Jarvis Bay, and she was able to do it quite well. No worries at all. Now, another interesting little point. I'm sorry, this is a rather bitty talk. There's nothing continuous about it. <coughs> A little later on, we had Navy Week. And do you know when we celebrated Navy Week in 1953? On Trafalgar Day, or in Trafalgar Week. Nothing to do with the present one. <coughs> on Trafalgar Day, Saturday the 24th, the ship was open to visitors and some 5,500 people avail themselves of the opportunity to look her over. However, it is regretted that most seem to believe her to be a grandstand for the purpose of viewing the helicopter rescue event which took place at hourly intervals off her starboard bow. At one stage, such was the press of spectators, she developed a list of nine degrees. Those were the good old days when people used to go up in the crane and submarines went up and down in the dock and nobody worried about people dropping over the side or getting run over or anything. Honestly, we've got so sort of worried about things these days that we can't do anything exciting at all. <coughs> anyway, that, that, that was, it was Trafalgar Day, you see, in those days. Uh, now, another fairly interesting little point is uh, we uh, Wagga operated with Cootamundra all the time we were the sort of minesweepers and I might say that uh, for the time we were completely switched on minesweeping wives both of us were fully equipped for sweeping moored <coughs> mines both of us were equipped with a double L sweep and both of us were equipped with an acoustic, I can't remember what we called it, I suppose an acoustic sweep. And uh, I would say that we were, if not at top efficiency, we were as efficient as any minesweeper was expected to be in those days, which is a lot better than the situation today, I think, as far as I know. Uh, I feel that minesweeping is uh, something that we seem to be neglecting a bit in the Navy at the moment. <coughs> anyway, we, Kudamundra and us, had a practice minefield set up down in Jarvis Bay. And uh, we used to lay six mines each. We'd take six mines down there and lay them and then we'd sweep them. They were dummies, of course. And... Uh, <coughs> It was quite good fun. And these mines we used to pick up right here, which was in those days known as the Boom Defence Depot at Waverton. We proceeded to the Boom Defence Depot to, to, to embark mines for replenishment of the practice minefield. Owing to the presence of a wreck in the natural line of approach, the Waverton berth is very difficult it was necessary to make the approach at right angles and to use a line-throwing rifle to gain contact with the shore. There was a wreck of an American four-pipe destroyer just off here. I don't know who it was or what it was. Who? Lewis. Lewis. She was a damn nuisance anyway. <laughs> um, now, I'd, I'd, I'd um, get on to something a little more interesting maybe. Um, In December, the Governor-General, who was Sir William Slim, flew to Norfolk Island from Evans Head 
in a RAAF Dakota. And we, Wagga and Kootamundra, were detailed off as plane guards, rescue destroyers, in case this aeroplane fell into rescue vessels, in case, in case this aeroplane fell into the drink. Now, Evans Head and Norfolk Island are just about east and west, and Wagga was set up two-thirds of the way to Norfolk Island, and Cootamundra was set up one-third of the way to Norfolk Island. In other words, Evans Head, one, two, Norfolk Island, like that. Now, we were in Brisbane when all this happened, and uh, Lord Howe Island, as opposed to Norfolk Island, Lord Howe was running short of kerosene. So before we left Brisbane, we embarked 40 drums, 44-gallon drums of kerosene, to deliver to Lord Howe Island after we had done the job with the Governor-General. Now, when we went round Cape Morton, I set course for this point in the ocean where we had to be next morning or whatever it was, and that's right, two-thirds of the way we were. Uh, and as dusk fell, it was one of these rather, well, it wasn't a bad night at all, but there were white horses everywhere, you know, sort of slop, slop, slop. <coughs> and I suddenly thought, I wonder where this course goes to. You know, in other words, has any ship ever had any reason to be steering this course before in the whole history of the world? So I got out a large-scale chart and extended the course, and sure enough, it went either south or north of New Zealand, I can't remember which, and just disappeared into the Antarctic. So quite obviously, no ship had ever traversed this course before. And at the same time, Brisbane, oh, pretty well south of the reef, but there's all sorts of little bits of pieces of the reef pop up below where the reef really ends. And it suddenly crossed my mind about dusk. Uh, how am I to know that uh, on this course there isn't some reef that nobody's run across before? <laughs> and, uh, and especially with this the waves sort of going slop all over the place and, you know, everywhere you looked you could see them breaking on reefs. So I um, turned on the, switched on the echo sounder and got no results, but of course that's what you expect from an echo sounder anyway. <laughs> so <coughs> I finally got the bright idea. We turned on the ASDIC. And of course we didn't have operators to operate it, but there's no reason why you shouldn't have a train dead ahead, like a fighter aircraft guns. Uh, so with the, uh, we proceeded for a while, I think I knocked off at about midnight actually, but we proceeded for a while with the loudspeaker on the bridge pinging away in a steady bearing dead ahead. And we didn't get any pings back, but in fact I guess that'd be a pretty good way of picking up a reef ahead. It, uh, anyway, <coughs> having, uh, let's see, uh, at 12.43 radio contact was gained with the Vice-Regal aircraft, we're on station now, and Wagga made smoke to assist the airmen to gain visual contact. At 13.10 the aircraft reported that Wagga was in sight and two minutes later it and its consort was seen about three miles to the southward, having passed intent oh, having passed intended course and speed, the aircraft was a shaped course for Lord Howe Island. At 8.15 on the following day, Mount Lidbird 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 and Gar and Ball's Pyramid were sighted ahead. And we eventually got to them at 12.05, so we had them in sight the whole of the forenoon watch. We came to anchor just south of Phillip Point, 
They were terribly pleased to see us with the kerosene which they'd run out of. Uh, we, um, we only had the night there, but we were given a very good time indeed. And I've never been back to Lord Howe Island, but I remember it as possibly the prettiest place I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely magnificent. And anyone who gets an opportunity to go there should. It, it, it's, uh, it's really something. Now, I was talking about battle practice targets a moment ago. We also used to tow targets called the Mark VI. Now, I'm going to get a bit technical here. Mark VI target was much smaller. In fact, it was a thing that almost planned. And this particular day, we're actually night, we're doing a night shoot with Hawea, a New Zealand vessel. And um, we used to tow this thing on a mine sweeping wire. And what should happen, but after a bit, it disappeared, the target that is. And the wire broke. So we deduced what had happened was that the target had turned upside down and being a planing thing this away, when it's upside down it's that away and eventually it had broken the wire, you see. So that was that, but these things are fairly expensive. We went back into harbour, we were about 10 miles off the coast at the time. We went back into harbour after having looked for it for a little while, but God save us there's no point at night. And this is the most incredible bit of luck here. I anchored in Watson's Bay, and four o'clock next morning, Wagga weighed and proceeded to the area in which the target had been lost in order to carry out the search in daylight. At 5.20, on the first leg of the search, the capsized target was sighted in precisely the position in which it had been reported missing. But, you know, and it, its freeboard would have been that. It's about, oh, I don't know, as big as four of these tables put together with that much freeboard, and we steamed ten miles off the coast and ran over it. <laughs> you know, it was just, just impossible. Uh, in fact, of course, what had happened was the wire had anchored it to the bottom. Now, this, this was quite, quite interesting. An attempt was made to manoeuvre the ship alongside, but the target was anchored firmly by its tow wire, and it took some moments to appreciate the strength of the southerly set ten miles off the coast. The ship was swept past, and on the next approach it was found possible to keep station on the target, head to set, with revolutions for two and a half knots. Of course, steam up and down is a very good one. You can go very slowly in them. Much difficulty was experienced in getting a line to it. Two grapnels were lost and two more straightened out when the weight came on. At another attempt, a two and a half ton spring hook was secured to part of the towing bridle, but this hook also straightened and carried away. Possibly the target is a bit bigger than four of these tables. <laughs> but that's the way it seems, my memory. The whaler was lowered, but a four-foot sea breaking over the target made landing on it too hazardous. And although a light line was secured, a heavier one could not be passed. It was obvious that the tow wire must be cut before there would be any chance of recovering the target. The suggestion that a sweep be streamed and the tow cut in this fashion was rejected on the grounds that such a course would place an unfair strain on the sweep wire. I wonder if it would have worked. Finally, and this, I, I'm proud of this to this day. Finally, the ship was manoeuvred, beam onto the set, up current from the target, an anchor was veered to one shackle, and the ship was allowed to drift down with slight sternway, so the target passed close ahead. As anticipated, the anchor fouled the tow wire, and on weighing it was found possible, after several attempts, to cut the tow with wire cutters. I reckon that was pretty smart. <laughs>
With the target floating free, it was a simple matter to place it alongside the lee side and secure it, and so on and so forth. So that was... Now we had... We had quite a... quite a... Um, a lot to do with the Gothic arriving when the Queen came out for the first time. You recall in 1954, in January or February, the Queen came out in a vessel called the Gothic, which was acting as the Royal Yacht. When I say we had quite a lot to do with it, there were two full-scale uh, rehearsals of the Gothic's arrival, and both times Wagga took the part of the Gothic. So we did have a lot to do with it. <coughs> um, Anyway, when, when the Gothic did come in, I must tell you about this. Ah, I've gone too far. Aha, here we are. <coughs> the, we, in fact, laid a dozen dam boys to mark the spots on the other side of which the spectator craft should remain and we cooperated with the volunteer coastal parole patrol in this matter who the volunteer coastal patrol I might say did a tremendous job on this day now here is a eyewitness account of the arrival of the gothic written at the time Wednesday, February the 3rd, dawned rich with the promise of fair weather. And at 0445, preceded by Kutamundra, Wagga slipped and commenced laying her dams. It had been anticipated that the operations may have been complicated by the presence of large numbers of small craft. However, most of the craft abroad at that time were heading purposefully towards the heads, and a clean lay resulted. At 5.30, with all dams in place, the ship proceeded to an anchorage in Obelisk Bay and shortly afterwards, Kutamundra anchored to the southward. Colours ceremony was observed in both ships dressed overall at 0700. That's interesting. I bet that's a point that's been lost in the mists of time. And at 0735, hands fell in by divisions on the side facing the anticipated track of the Royal Yacht. A few minutes later she came into sight, approaching the heads at slow speed. <coughs> By this time, the harbour entrance was thick with small craft of all types, shapes and sizes. A number of ferries stood out in the centre like half-tied rocks, each with a terrifying list to seaward. A number of surfboats and one or two men on surfboards were observed, and one intrepid type weaved through the throng on water skis towed by a speedboat. Altogether, it was a scene to be long remembered. As Gothic entered the heads, the sound level reached a tremendous height with every possible device for making a noise in simultaneous operation. The whole assisted by the cheers of the multitude. However, head and shoulders above the rest stood the person who had installed what appeared to be and sounded like a salvaged air raid siren in his boat. As the Royal Yacht passed, Wagga sounded off, but despite the fact that the strength of the piping party had been increased to seven, the maximum number of calls available at short notice, the pipe was barely audible on the forecastle. <coughs> However, after the ship's company had been at attention for a minute or so, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, was observed to look at the ship through glasses. He then called out to the deck below and a bugle note was heard above the tumult. So that is the entrance of the Gothic. Of course, it was the first time a reigning sovereign had been into Sydney and people did get pretty, pretty excited about it. <coughs> now, I want to tell you about... Oh, very quickly, I'll tell you about towing a Dutch landing craft. <coughs> this, this is... <laughs> there was a Dutch landing craft the name of which was L9607. Um, she was stationed in Dutch New Guinea. You know, one forgets that New Guinea, West New Guinea was Dutch in those days. 
and she was coming down to Sydney for a refit. And in the Coral Sea she broke down and the Australia was cruising up there with the Governor General on board. And she went racing off to the rescue of this vessel and took it in tow and towed it at three knots until it had repaired itself when of course the Australia couldn't stick around too long having the Governor General on board. But I always remember Russell Vasey was doing an ACT at the time and he as a Lieutenant Commander was in watches uh, on the quarter deck as the sort of officer in charge of the tow, sort of keeping an eye on the tow at three knots for about four days and then eventually this thing got going again. Fine. Uh, Alan McNichol, who was the captain, was the Dutch government was so pleased they awarded him the Order of the Orange Nassau, which he still wears and it's in the Navy list. <coughs> anyway, that was that. Well, this thing, no sooner had the Australia disappeared over the horizon than this thing broke down again. So what happens? Oh, Wagga sent up to get it. So we found this thing. We took it in tow. And we had a party lined up in Brisbane. We found it. <coughs> well, I can tell you how far it was. Four hundred miles. We found it four hundred miles north of Brisbane. We took it in tow. Uh, by 0800, Wagga was doing revolutions for 10 knots. At 1100, revolutions were increased to 11 and a half knots. And these revolutions were maintained until we got to Brisbane. Otherwise, we'd have missed our party. We didn't have any lieutenant commanders on the quarter deck. We didn't have anyone very much. Uh, I might say the maximum speed of this LCT on his engines was eight knots, so for uh, this period he was going faster than he'd ever gone in his life before. Uh, at 22.15 both ships arrived in Brisbane. The 400 mile tow had been completed in 39 hours. I reckon that's pretty good. I did not get an order of the Orange Nassau. I didn't even get a letter saying, well done. <coughs> it just shows you, you need to be a four-ring captain with the Governor-General on board to be really recognised. <laughs> now, I shall... Coming to the last little bit, I'm going to talk about an epic cruise. An epic... Yes, an epic cruise. We, and I've got an idea that there's an officer here who was with us. <coughs> By the, <coughs> we're, we're around now to July 1954, and <coughs> a number of officers, reserve officers, uh, were sort of set up to be captains or first lieutenants of minesweepers or OMSs in the case of hostilities. <coughs> and Wagga and Cootamundra proceeded on a cruise up to Harvey Bay with seven extra officers each. Now, I have the list of my officers, the ones who were with me. Cootamundra had seven, and I remember well they were John Shelley, um, Bill Dovey, I'm almost certain, weren't you? Did you? He was with me. I'll write, read them out in a moment. <coughs> anyway, now one of the fascinating bits was, I don't know if any of you know Bill Doby, but he is without a doubt the biggest bloke I know personally. I mean, there are bigger fellows in the world. I know. <laughs> that, that's right. And she's just a midget beside old Bill. Uh, <coughs> He's the biggest guy I personally know. Now, Cootamundra changed captain some time before, and Cootamundra got an RN lieutenant commander called Tommy Patch. Now, Tommy Patch was a 13-year-old Dartmouth entry. <coughs> and when old Tom fronted up to Dartmouth at the age of 13, he was a very, very small 13. 
but of course lots of guys are very small when they're 13. And old Tom would have been, and when I say small, I'm not fooling, I'm talking about four foot eight, that sort of height. Nothing like five feet, nothing like five feet. Anyway, into Dartmouth he went, four years in Dartmouth, came out of Dartmouth age 17, he was still four foot eight. When he was a lieutenant commander, he was still four foot eight. <laughs> he, was, he was the smallest naval officer I've ever seen. And he complained bitterly that had he been a proper height, he would have been a captain by then, because he was a, a well and truly passed over two and a half. And one of his great claims to fame, as a matter of fact, was that his brother, uh, a Royal Marine officer, uh, led the Taranto raid. You'll, if you read your, about the... Or he may have been one of the two squadron leaders. Uh, I, I wouldn't say he actually led it, but uh, squadron commanders. Uh, you'll find Captain somebody or other Patch Royal Marines was one of the senior guys in the Taranto raid. Anyway, the point of my story about Tommy Patch is that he and Bill Davey became absolutely inseparable. And he would drink with Bill, drink for drink, he had a gigantic, you know how the old Poms have got these huge glass mugs they drink their hot beer out of, uh, their hot flat beer. Well, well, he, well he, had, he had a a thing like this and he, and he used to drink cold bubbly Australian beer out of this thing like it was going out of fashion and and as I say drink drink for drink with old Bill and, and he he Tommy would have been totally topped up I mean had he been hollow he would have been topped up before Bill had filled one of his legs I mean one of Bill's legs <laughs> but he used to stay reasonably sober anyway away we went on this trip and in Wagga we had Lieutenant Commanders Dillon, Bertie Dick and Ken Robin. I'm sure some of you remember them. And we had Lieutenants Doug McWilliam, Jim Stott, Bob McComas and Earl Goodwin. That was our seven. <coughs> um, and I say here, as can be imagined, the accommodation was somewhat cramped, but to the credit of everyone, each problem as it arose was dealt with amicably and in good spirit. A useful innovation was the replacement of the small wardroom table by an expanding table ex HMAS Moresby, that's the old Moresby of course, which at full stretch could accommodate ten officers simultaneously. In consequence, during the cruise it was possible to hold one or two most enjoyable formal mess dinners which, of course, we did. Now, we practiced minesweeping all the way up. Now, the first thing I'd like to tell you about this one, I'm going to read this, if I may, and I think it could be of interest to some of you. It can get a bit technical, but don't worry about it. <coughs> when we were up in... A Harvey Bay, we were exercising A sweeping, and I'll read from here on. <coughs> on completion of the exercise, the ships proceeded towards their anchorage for the night, carrying out equal speed officer of the watch manoeuvres en route, whilst maintaining the original A sweep distance of three quarters of a cable. Speed was 12 knots. Owing to a shortage of signal staff, orders were passed by voice circuit and were being monitored by the officer of the watch himself, so it was very much a one-man operation. My officer of the watch was a mature and experienced RANR officer with a full watchkeeping certificate from wartime days. I was impressed with the skill and enthusiasm with which he was carrying out manoeuvres, the manoeuvres, and the obvious enjoyment and value he was deriving from his 13 days annual continuous training. Eventually, with the anchorage ahead but still some distance away, the ships found themselves on a course of 178 degrees, lying abreast with my vessel to port. 
I was on the bridge leaning on the port telegraph and facing away from the leader. That's the leader. I was deep in conversation with the first lieutenant. At this stage, the senior officer decided a two-degree adjustment of course was required for accurate anchoring and came the order turn 180, which means turn together to 180 degrees. Went two degrees only to starboard. When the order was given, the ships had been steady on course for maybe three minutes after half an hour of continuous manoeuvres. The anchorage was still well ahead, hence the officer of the watch was tuned to manoeuvres rather than to minor course adjustments. Therefore, possibly not surprisingly, the order was interpreted in error as turn 1-8, a complete reversal of course, ships turning together. <laughs> and accordingly, the officer of the watch, when he should have gone two degrees to starboard, accordingly, the officer of the watch ordered starboard 15. <laughs> Had no counter order followed, then no danger existed. My ship would have passed close but safely under the stern of my senior. However, it was not to be. The ship had swung through about 45 degrees when the officer of the watch realised his mistake. He ordered hard a port. It was this order and the tone of voice in which it was given that alerted me to potential hazard. By the time I had assessed the situation, my bow was swinging fast to port with the jack staff apparently keeping station on the leader's bridge, <laughs> which was approaching rapidly. A collision was maybe 10 seconds away. What to do? There was no time for any voice order to be absorbed and executed. A reversal, of course, would ensure a right angle ramming rather than the evolving 60-degree crunch. <coughs> One forlorn option remained. <coughs> As you remember, up here I was leaning on the port telegraph. <coughs> My hand was already on the port telegraph. I rang full astern, double, emergency ring. People say that Fullerstern is an emergency order and you don't need to bring double rings because uh, that's just... What? It's just doing something you've done already. But if you ring Fullerstern once out of the blue, the watchkeeper thinks, I wonder if the officer of the watch really means that or whether he's just got his... <laughs> not, you know. Whereas if you ring it twice, he knows that you mean it. Now... <clears throat> My chief ERA had been taking the evening air in the starboard waist a couple of paces from the engine room door. The manoeuvres for the past hour, half hour had been attracting his casual attention and when the ship turned to starboard, apparently to cross under her consort's stern, he took a passing interest only. Suddenly, as he watched, the turn was checked and the ship began to swing rapidly to port. And there ahead, far too close, was the leader. A collision was imminent the chief ERA knew his duty. In literally a couple of bounds he was on the engine room plates and as he arrived the port telegraph rang full astern. Before the second ring was complete he had elbowed aside the astonished watchkeeper and had flung the linkage into a stern with no concession to the continuing input of steam. We had steam for 12 knots, normally you turn the steam off and then you put the engine astern and you turn the steam on again. <coughs> Right. The flying pistons of the port engine stopped dead with a thump which shook the ship. They dwelt a split second, then instantly resumed their previous spinning, but in the opposite direction. The strain on an engine subjected to this manoeuvre is immense and normally quite unacceptable, but this was an emergency. And now, thanks to the prompt action of the chief ERA, in a matter of a few seconds, the 12-knot thrust of the port engine had been completely reversed. For those on the bridge, the instantaneous reaction to the engine order bordered on the miraculous. Before my hand had left the telegraph handle, there was a vast shuddering and vibration throughout the ship 
and white water was boiling on the port quarter. The turn tightened abruptly until a few seconds and some frantic orders later, I fetched up in echelon with my leader, course 180 degrees, speed 12 knots minus, distance between ships two feet. No contact occurred. In retrospect, contributing factors to the incident were <coughs> A, I'll just overly close stationing of ships, three quarters of a cable at 12 knots equals 22 and a half seconds. Initiation of an order obviously open to misinterpretation, especially in the context in which it was given. Bad judgment on the part of the officer of the watch and lack of attention on my part. However, by the most extraordinary luck, aided and abetted by the initi initiative and dash exhibited by the chief ERA, the ameliorating factors outweighed the contributing factors by a whisker, or in the event, two feet, as follows. The luck in the unconventional, uh, unconventional design of the ship, controls on the bridge, which is unusual for a warship, reciprocating engines, which is unusual for a warship, with a unique facility of reversing at full power in a matter of seconds. The luck that the captain happened to have the port telegraph actually in hand, and the luck that the chief ERA saw the emergency developing and so arrived in the engine room prepared for emergency orders. So that is how I didn't cut the cootamundra in half. <laughs> but there was luck there. Now, <clears throat> I'll just finish off with our Harvey Bay cruise. This happened, as I say, in Harvey Bay. And then would you believe that the following day, Sunday the 11th, do dawned overcast and threatening with an easterly wind gusting to force eight. We went out and did a bit of sweeping, but it was decided that the weather wasn't suitable. By noon, the wind had increased to force nine from the east, and on clearing the lee of Great Sandy Island, I was going to try to pick up a couple of Dan boys. A very heavy, short, steep sea was encountered. This sea caused the most violent motion in the ship, etc., etc., etc. And eventually, we proceeded to shelter, coming to anchor in six fathoms on a sandy bottom, seven cables offshore of the easternmost bight of Platypus Island, which, uh, Platypus Bay, at 1430. <coughs> uh, Harvey. Um, Great Sandy Island, which is the outside bit of Harvey Bay, it's got a thing called Platypus Bay into it with an easterly wind. You can, if you can get well in there, you, you've got a big high island and it's not too bad. You, you're fairly well sheltered. <coughs> the first cyclone warning had been received from Brisbane at about 13.15, and from then on a large number of these signals were read. During the next 48 hours, the weather conditions were ascribed to no less than three cyclones following each other down the coast. In this time, the wind remained steady from 090 degrees, indicating that the cyclone, or cyclones, were approaching the ship from the north on a steady bearing. However, <coughs> I'll go into the exciting bit in a minute, but this, this takes you to the end. However, when the wind did drop, indicating that the centre was passing overhead, head, it did not blow appreciably again, and from then on the weather was good. Nevertheless, whether or not a cyclone did exist, the fact remains that the ships experienced a very severe storm indeed. After Wagga anchored on the 11th, the wind continued to increase until 1800, when it was estimated to be blowing at force 11 and it was observed by radar that the ship had dragged about half a cable. The wind moderated to force eight by midnight and then gradually increased until at 0600 on Monday, it was estimated to be force 12 and the ship was observed to have dragged another half cable. <coughs> the ship then moderated to force five, increasing again until by 1400 it was back to force 12. <coughs> it was back to force 12. 
and I meant this because you don't put in your, your uh, reported proceedings things that didn't happen. <coughs> it was back to Force 12. At this time, a number of violent gusts of three or four minutes duration were experienced. Now, I've no idea what these gusts would have been, but I'll tell you what happened. In the first of these, the ship yawed well out to starboard. We have the port cable at full extent, and we have the starboard cable underfoot. <coughs> she yawed out to starboard, and as you all know, when a ship's not secured to the bottom, and she's not moving through the water, uh, she'll turn beam onto the wind. We yawed out to starboard, and with the wind on the port beam, and the port cable at its maximum long stay of beam, dragged to leeward at an appreciable speed with a five or ten degree list to starboard. When the wind dropped again to force 12, it was found that the ship had dragged about half a mile. Meanwhile, special sea duty men had been summoned, both anchors were weighed and the ship proceeded back to its previous berth, re-anchoring at 15.05. Now, I reckon, I, I just don't know what that wind was, but it, it must have been, what's a force 12 wind? 100, 100 knots, 120 knots or something? I think this must have been 150 knots or something. Just imagine with your anchor in the sandy bottom, which gives a pretty good grip. Anyway, except for a Force 11 blow of about an hour's duration at about 21.30 that evening, the wind remained steady, Force 8 or 9, <coughs> till next morning it suddenly dropped altogether. Immediately the ship was engulfed in very heavy rain accompanied by much lightning and thunder. <laughs> there it is. Now, of course, I thought, when this happened, I thought the centre was passing over us. The wind had been steady from the east. We had maybe a quarter of an hour, half an hour to get out of it before the wind came at force 12 from the west. But it never happened. We cleared out as hard as we could, and the wind never blew again. We uh, went out to sea. There was an enormous swell in one thing and another but no more wind and when eventually when eventually we got into Brisbane we didn't have a chance to tell anybody oh there had been great floods there by the way we didn't have a chance to tell anybody our harrowing story because they were so busy telling us theirs <coughs> the uh, and I'll just finish with one little point one little thing, <clears throat> towards the end of the time, we did a night encounter exercise with a New Zealand frigate called the Canary, K-A-N-I-E-R-E, -E, not the Canary, the Canary. And uh, she just had one gun, and uh, <clears throat> she had star shells. Now, usually ships with one gun in those days, they had rocket rails, but for some reason, either she didn't have rocket rails or she didn't have rockets or she didn't want to use her rockets. She wanted to use Starshell. Anyway, she had been doing night firings at a target, <coughs> and then we had this night encounter exercise, and uh, they had some sort of a rudimentary director in those vessels, <coughs> and the director, of course, points the gun at the target, and if you're firing at a target, the director also sets the elevation. Uh, the director's on the target by radar and sets the elevation. But when you're firing star shell, you want to go right over the ship you're firing at and drop the star shell behind it, way up in the sky. So there's a thing, or in those days, there was a thing called a, a, a little bubble thing called a star shell bubble, and the bloke who, the layer, the guy who makes the gun do this, instead of following the director for shooting at somebody this way, he follows the bubble, so he shoots up in the air, you see. <coughs> well, Canary opened fire with star shell. I think she fired a bracket of four star shell for a start, or was it six? It doesn't matter. 
and everything was fine except the using us for the targets, you see, except that either the layer hadn't been told to follow his star shell bubble, or he didn't know that he was firing star shell or something. But anyway, we had these rounds fired at us uh, without being poked up in the air. And uh, <coughs> she opened fire and uh, we heard, well, there was one thing I'll swear, it went through the rigging and I thought, that's funny, that sounds pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> and no star shell appeared. And then she fired another group and there was another one sounded. <coughs> And then finally, the third lot she fired, <coughs> was a bloody great shell splash just off our bow. <coughs> so, so I got on the TBS and I hollered and jumped up and down and, uh, and uh, made a few remarks and one thing or another and, and then she got the message and, and she started firing at us, at least firing her guns the way they're supposed to be. Now, I think that's about all I've got to say. I, I could go on for ages. I've got, as you can... Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for more information about Australian naval history, then you should use our website. You'll find more podcasts, articles from our quarterly in-house magazine, Naval Historical Review, and a range of e-books, monographs and ships' plans for sale in our online shop. If you have any questions or research inquiries about Australian naval history, then feel free to contact us. Use the link on the website homepage. The Society is a not-for-profit organisation which relies on your continuing support. Please use our website links to become a member or donate now, or sign up as a volunteer, or subscribe to our newsletters. See you next time.